That Triathlon Show, episode 13. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. As always, I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, as I alluded to several times on last episode, the Q&A session in episode 12, we have Matt Dixon on as our interview guest, and he is somebody who has a lot to teach all of you age groupers out there that are trying to combine busy, busy schedules, families, careers, and other commitments with your often very high triathlon goals. So that is a struggle. And we had a question on last week's episode about that specific struggle. And today we dive into that in great detail with Matt. So I'm excited about that. First, a short introduction to Matt. He is the founder of Purple Patch Fitness. He is a best-selling author of The Well-Built Triathlete, which is an excellent book, which I highly recommend that you go to Amazon and get right after this interview. He coaches pro athletes like world champion from last year, 2016, at the 70.3 distance, Tim Reed, and other pros and stars like Jesse Thomas, Sarah Pimpiano, and lots of other ones, as well as age groupers, some of which have achieved great success at age group level, like winning world championships, and so on. Matt's athletic background is as an elite swimmer and professional triathlete, and his educational background is in exercise physiology. So he definitely has the know-how and the expertise to be a high-level elite coach. And uh, we go into some of the very interesting stuff from his professional background, how he burnt the candle at both ends in his own athletic career, and learn invaluable lessons that have shaped his coaching philosophy in this interview. After that, we get into the real meat and potatoes of this episode, which is Matt's pillars of performance for triathlon, which is endurance training, but also nutrition, recovery, and strength and conditioning. Importantly, in no particular order, they are, they are all essential for triathlon success whatever you define as your success. So this is not just for super high-level age groupers. This is for everybody out there. Then we talk about the importance of mindset for age group triathletes and how you should approach the triathlon training that you do as an, kind of an optimization problem. So it's really, really good stuff. So look out for that. And finally, we have some probably more training specific stuff coming up which is about about how matt lays out the training progress over the course of the season for his, his athletes basically his approach to periodization so there's a lot of stuff going on into this interview and uh, it's a long interview so let's jump right in welcome to that triathlon show matt welcome thanks so much thanks for having me it's my pleasure. So is there anything that we should talk about regarding your background before we start going into the training specific questions that we have in store for you? 
Yeah, um, you know, as you mentioned, my, my, my educational background is exercise physiology. My, my athletic background started as a swimmer and I swam up to a, uh, you know, pretty high level as a finalist in Olympic trials and, uh, and went through that and, um, and did race professionally as a, as a triathlete for several years. Although I think the, the most important part when I look back on my athletic career was uh, I think I'm a prime example of how to do a professional career poorly and, uh, and taking with the help of what I now see as crazy coaches with the help of some potentially poor coaching, but also having should have known better myself. I managed to train myself into the ground as a professional athlete and many of the elements that have ended up sort of becoming foundational in my thinking of the way that I approach coaching uh, were really born out of my experience of going through some form of chronic fatigue and being forced to take a step back now about 15 years ago and looking at the sport of triathlon and how it was approached at that time and just thinking there must be a better way. And, uh, and, and there was really born my, my at least triathlon coaching career. I was originally a swimming coach, uh, dovetailed into triathlon coaching, uh, obviously because of uh, myself becoming a triathlete. And, uh, and so now, 15 years later, it's, it's interesting that so many of those, those thoughts or founding principles around what has become Purple Patch Methodology, they're still just as strong and enforced in my thinking and have become more the norm in the sport. Um, I, I think as we, as we have progressed, as the sport has learned and grown, it's still a, a relatively young sport. And, you know, I obviously have my squad of professional athletes that I work with, with you know, currently 10 pros. I try and keep it around 10. I don't like to go much more than that, uh, but my 10 professional athletes, but the principles apply to them in the same way as it does apply to the busiest amateurs that are just beginning the sport. And, and we're very lucky. We get to work with the broad range. We work with very busy amateurs, professional athletes, all the way up to world champion at the moment, Tim Reed. Uh, and, um, and people are just getting into the sport and we're, we're, we're San Francisco based, but, but the nice thing is we have athletes all over the world, which, uh, which really makes it interesting for us. So let's dig a little bit deeper into how you got yourself into that whole, was that just too much training overall, too much high intensity training, or, or how did it happen for you? Well, as, as a swimmer, I'd say that I was, uh, I was a world-class trainer. Um, I, I certainly, you know, I, I was not born with the genetic predisposition of Michael Phelps and uh, didn't, don't have size 15 feet and my hands aren't that big. But, um, but I certainly brought the work ethic, and I, I sort of say that without ego now, just looking back on it. But the, my swimming years, our, our training program was, was high volume, 25 to 27 hours a week of swimming every week. And almost every day felt like it was threshold. So I think when I look back at that, the in-season times that I was producing were very, very similar to the times when you had come to the big events of the year, national championships, Olympic trials, events, uh, you know, NC2As, things like that. And there wasn't that jump up in performance. And if you are doing, so I think in that case, it was a real combination of, of high volume and high, uh, high percentage of training at a moderately hard to very hard effort. And so I think it was a combination of both. 
in triathlon, which is really where I ran into the biggest roadblocks, I, I, I essentially just took that work effort and applied it to Ironman training. And I'm a bigger guy at the moment. I'm about 195 pounds. When I was racing, I was maybe 185 pounds. So I was a much bigger athlete. And, and I think in, in uh, taking that work ethic and having coaches that would take that work ethic as well, it was high volume and too much intensity. And, and, and of course, I could never hit really high intensity because I did too much moderately hard intensity on this big, big volume place. But I think the other part that was really important were the supporting cast, uh, very poor fueling habits, uh, being told to, to drop weight, to drop weight, you need to get lighter. So of course, that starts to move into negative eating patterns, really trying to almost limit my caloric intake, probably not following the appropriate fueling following workouts. So I think there was a, an athletic starvation going on. I didn't have a massive emotional connection with food, but the athletic starvation that started to, uh, to compromise that and just a simple lack of recuperation, a lack of quality of sleep. And when I look back on it now, all of the red flags were there, night sweats, broken sleep, um, overall fatigue, loss of motivation, but physiology ultimately collapsed before my my work ethic gave out and and that was you know so i was a victim of my own habits in many ways and that's a great segue into my first real training question which is about your pillars of performance can you describe for the audience what they are and how they should apply the pillars of performance in their training and in their lives well you know ultimately I, I developed the pillars of performance as a concept as it was really an educational tool. And when, when I think of athlete success, so often what I also call the supporting cast, which uh, the pillars of performance are, are the anchors of a successful training program. So you have the endurance component, of course, that's the bullseye. That is the swim, bike and run. We are triathletes. We must do swim, bike and run. But in support of, of that swimming and cycling and running for an athlete to be successful there has to be emphasis intent and focus on recovery as a component of it and that's a broad subject in itself strength and conditioning really really important particularly important for amateur athletes i would say although every one of my professional athletes incorporates strength and conditioning and then the big bucket of nutrition which includes fueling the calories consumed during and immediately following workouts, hydration, of course, during and outside of workouts, and your daily platform of eating. So we have these four pillars, endurance training, nutrition, recovery, strength, and conditioning. And I developed it mostly for an educational tool. And what I wanted athletes to do is take a step back and not become so obsessed with, with training success, global program success being focused primarily on some bike and run, and then having the others being afterthoughts. So instead, what we did is we created these pillars of performance and said, this is the program. So when you are a purple patch athlete, your program is not swim, bike and run, and then everything else is an afterthought. To be successful, you need to actually have bubble up an importance that integrated recovery is a part of the program. It's not an afterthought. It's not a place that is, um, uh, that is 
there to, to sit back and looked at as something fearful for an athlete, it is a part of your program in the same way as good eating habits, good sleeping habits and everything else become a part of it. And by changing that relationship, what I was able to do was to get athletes to adhere and see the big picture. And so there's nothing revolutionary about the pillars of performance apart from it was a educational and coaching tool for me to establish at the very basic level, the most at the baseline, when an athlete enters the program and starts to adhere to the program, this is what we value. This is what we want to at every point of the way and to keep them in the big picture. So, so that's really the mindset or the start that we, uh, that we did with the Pillars of Performance. So what does this look like in practice? Do you actually have, say, things like nutrition and sleep programmed into the athlete's training schedule as reminders remember to sleep eight to ten hours and remember your post-workout fueling or is it more like education during coaching calls and so on to keep that on top of mind i i think a little bit of both um you, you mentioned education at the end there and uh, and the, the first so almost answer with a question to start which is what is coaching and what what are what as we as coaches what are, what are we what is our role what is our job what are we looking to do and unfortunately i think a lot of coaches think that prescribing a training program on an excel spreadsheet or in training peaks or another planned delivery tool that's coaching but for me i i feel like we're teachers and there are two sides that there are two or three elements to coaching. The first is the prescription of a smart training program. And that has to be applicable to the athlete, their background, their goals, and most importantly, their life, especially for an amateur athlete. But the second part of it then becomes the, the education of the athlete to, to enable them to understand the intent of the training and what we're looking to get accomplished. And with that becomes the, the burden on the coach to be an educator, a teacher, and say, this is what we're looking to accomplish. So ultimately what I'm looking for is the athlete to become empowered to make smart decisions, to understand what the intent of the worker is and to go and be able to prescribe it. So it is the pillars of performance are absolutely integrated into the training program, even the way that we build the training program. So I'll never build a training program as a rigid, uh, unmovable spreadsheet. Um, I, I build it with uh, a hierarchy of importance in sessions. So these sessions of the week that are providing the greatest specificity that are central to the week, the do not miss sessions that we want athletes to be ready for. And then we have the supporting sessions that we look at, which are, those, which are those sessions that are there to facilitate recovery, prepare for the upcoming C sessions, uh, key sessions, or provide overall endurance. And that creates a hierarchy. And even within those sessions, we have scalability based on either time or fatigue, fatigue status. So at the swim, bike, and run status, we have a bit more of a breathing, living, dynamic training program that fits into the reality of life. We then have uh, those sessions that are designated for recovery because a part of our training is recuperation. And so by really making those clear and understanding when to go easy 
which is a huge factor for athletes so that they can be ready for the key sessions, it enables adherence. In support of all of that, we have very, very clear and, and robust education around those other verticals, around um, nutrition, around hydration, around recovery protocols. And within the actual endurance training sessions itself, integrated strength and conditioning. So not an afterthought, not I'll go and do strength and conditioning. They are standalone sessions integrated into the program. So, so yeah, we, we really try and live and, and breathe the, the, the overall sort of founding very basic mindset and make it an integrated approach. But a part of it, it is education. It has to exist like that. Yes, well said. I think that if you, as a coach, manage to get your athlete to a level where they are an effective coach themselves, they are able to self-coach, then you've done a good job as a coach. So regarding the pillars of performance, we've discussed swimming, biking and running a lot on the show. So we'll skip that. But can you give a few main takeaways for nutrition, recovery and functional strength training? that the listeners can can apply and get the, a big picture overview of what the main most important things in those areas are? So from a recovery standpoint, um, I, I, I like to bucket recovery into three main areas, which is training, lifestyle and modalities. And, um, and when we think about training, I think it's very important for athletes to have um, to have uh, seasonal breaks and blocks in the overall season that they get to really take a step back from structured training. Uh, they can remain active, but structured training. And that's at the very sort of top 10,000 foot view. But then as we come down, I much prefer to uh, drip feed frequent recovery in the mosaic of the training week or the training weeks, rather than thinking three weeks of hard work one week of complete recovery. Um, I think that that diminishes the quality of the of much of the three weeks of hard training that you're doing and wastes a bunch of time by having a complete week of recuperation. So I like to inject two to three days of lighter training every 10 to 14 days or so. And, and as I mentioned before, then also have lighter sessions and recuperant sessions that have real purpose and intent and it may be more of a technical element in because training stress is low for an athlete to do it. So the training recovery is, is part of the training prescription. But the other parts of recovery that are very important is the number one recovery tool that you have, and it's free, is sleep. And so when a lifestyle component, we spend a lot of time around sleep habits, sleep environment, the power of, of naps, very short naps, 15 to 30 minute naps or meditation. You don't even have to fall asleep to be effective. But sleep quality is something that we really try and prioritize. And that's challenging for very busy athletes. Uh, we know that athletes are not all going to get 10 hours of sleep a night. It's not a reality in, um, in Western life. But the sleep quality is important. And then a platform of, of proper eating. And, uh, and it comes to the nutrition bucket of of probably the most important recovery tool along with sleep that we have is post-workout fueling. Uh, I think that to have proper eating habits and to ensure that we are eating effectively from, from a recovery standpoint and a platform of health, we have to have a habit, and a habit is something you don't think about, 
a habit that every single training session is followed with post-workout fueling. And that's something that's a non-negotiable for a purple patch athlete. Those two big buckets of recovery, those are the primary things. Training plan, uh, prescription or design, and then sleep and a nutrition component. With those, those are the basics. Those are the easy things to get right. The other element of recovery, trigger point, foam roller, massage, ice therapy, heat therapy, yadi, all of the stuff that you can buy, that's an afterthought. It's a nice to have, some of the elements are good, some are more effective than the other, but for me, that's not what recovery is. So that's the recovery bucket. The nutrition bucket, I think it's, um, I think for me, when I think about athletes, I'd say, what can an athlete control? They can control their training, so the volume, the prescription, the intervals, etc. They can control their equipment, and they should keep their equipment clean and functional. That's a very basic thing. They can control their sleep, potentially, and then they can control their nutrition. Not much else. So why do athletes neglect one of those four elements that they can really control? They should really be focused on nutrition. It starts with fueling, post-workout fueling. I think that's a really important habit not just for the effectiveness of the session, the recovery from the session, but it really has a knock-on effect, a discussion for another day, but a knock-on effect with how they're eating for the rest of the day. Um, a second thing that occurs, I think, in the daily nutrition is the quality of the food that they're putting in, avoiding voodoo diets, just trying to eat unprocessed foods, very healthy foods. But the biggest limiter, I think, for many endurance athletes is to actually eat enough food to sustain the training load. So most athletes, and, and, and actually athletes with body composition athlete, uh, issues, most are actually under eating, interestingly. So if we can get good habits, good timing, but good amount of food, that's usually it. And the final component, strength and conditioning, uh, it's a big subject in itself, but, uh, but it has to be progressive, it has to be specific to the sport, and it has to be year round. Um, Further away from racing, it can be a bigger component of the weekly training schedule. You might be doing three sessions a week uh, for the less time restricted, but at least two sessions a week. As we go through race season um, and, uh, and into race season, you're probably only doing one session a week, but it's still effective and the personality is a bit more therapeutic at that time. So, so that's the quick and dirty. Yeah, that's good. And I want to piggyback on what you said about post-workout fueling. That's something that I've changed after reading your book. I've always been decent at it, pretty good at it, I would say, but but now I've become excellent at it all, always immediately after workouts fueling with something. And after intense workouts, I fuel with quite a bit more than I used to, more carbs and a bit more protein as well. And I feel that it's making a massive difference, even if it's never been a problem, but uh, it really does help you perform even better in in the next workouts you have the, the coming days when you do it really at, at, at a great level and also with how you eat the rest of your day as you said it eliminates some of the cravings that people get some of the control things and um and i think it's important to mention that it doesn't have to be some shake it doesn't have to be engineered feed it can be one of your meals it just needs to occur really quickly afterwards and it's just a really sound do not fail uh, habit that when you introduce it has a bunch of knock-on effects it elicits control in daily eating 
what your energy level is like when you go to work for the rest of the day, let alone the actual training sessions itself. And ultimately, look, we're balancing performance in life with performance in triathlon. And so this is just a great habit for athletes to get into. And it's the first thing we start with. So we mold the training program and say, this is the non-negotiable thing. And it's not because it's the most important thing, but it's one that does have great effect in multiple areas. And once we get that right, we can eliminate it as an issue. And so, uh, so I, think it's, I think you're spot on with that. Great. And one thing that you've been talking about in our email conversations is the mindset of age group triathletes specifically. Can you elaborate a bit on that? What, what's that all about? Yeah, the, I think the mindset of the... The, the starting point of what training success is. And uh, the unfortunate thing with the, with the amateur athletes is that much of the information, and they get a lot of information, they get a lot of uh, education, I would say, but a lot of it is derived from how the pros do it. And ultimately, I think as, as busy amateurs, and we, we have to think about what we have in our lives. And if we take... Craig Alexander is a wonderful athlete, but what he has in his life beyond sponsors and, and other things like that, his mission is world-class performance. So his life is built around training. So swim, bike, run, strength, massage, naps, eating, and then everything else fits around that. He is a professional athlete. And so to use a professional athlete as our barometer of training success It's a failing mission to try and just dilute the training program and dump it on top of life. And yet that's what athletes are pushed to do, persuaded to do. And what's happened is that their barometer of success, training success, is how many hours a week they can accumulate. And that ignores these unmovable things we have in life, families, work, the need for sleep, travel for work often. And... And so it's, a, it, it's, a, it's sort of looking over the fence, looking at what other people do. And, and a great example is the first question that I'll get with an amateur athlete is, I've signed up for Ironman X. How many hours a week do I have to train? Well, that's the wrong mindset, in my opinion. That's the wrong approach. So the answer that they get is, I don't know. Uh, not, not, not a response that usually brings about a smile. But the reason for that is I really think that an athlete if they're going to be successful, has to approach the challenge from the other side of the equation to take a really good look at themselves and their lives and say, what are these things? Like, look, these things are unmovable. I have to work and I have to work well. I need to retain health. I want to have some time for relationships and family, etc., like that, things like that. Now what my job is, is my job with my hobby, my triathlon, that, that is a serious hobby. I want to achieve results but it's an optimization challenge. So rather than saying, how do I fit in X number of hours? Instead, the mindset should, the mindset should be, these are how many hours that I have. Now, how do I optimize them? What is the training solution that's gonna optimize these hours that I have? And it might be 10 hours, it might be eight, it might be 16. And some of my amateur athletes have 20 hours and lots of capacity, and we can accumulate a training program that has that personality. Another athlete might only have 10 hours. And so we have to get there with 10 hours and go from, from, from that mindset. But what that enables is if you start with that, that approach, 
you start to set up a runway of an integrated approach that can achieve the major thing with any endurance sport success, which is consistency. Because if you do that, you're going to have greater consistency, much less unpredictability of fatigue levels, much lower incidence of injury. And when you layer, let's just say 10 hours a week, week after week after week after week after week, and you're highly motivated, you're healthy, you've got more balanced energy, you're still bringing things into life, you don't have boyfriends, husbands, wives starting to hate your hobby, but it's a part of your life. When you layer and layer and layer, success still comes. And, and that's the thing is, is, is ultimate success is it shouldn't feel like you're shackled and you're sleep deprived. And unfortunately, without that approach, what we see in amateur triathlon, triathletes is that we have a high percentage of them underperforming relative to their effort. And that's really frustrating as a coach to see. They're committed, they're motivated, they train hard, but they underperform. They walk around fit and fatigued. And if we just get them to be slightly non-emotional, not try and mimic a pro's program, but actually be really practical and say, this is sustainable for me, success comes. And we've, we've bought off on that globally as, as a coach, that's how I do it, but the Purple Patch community, that's how we do it. And our results, I think, for that reason, you know, we're known for our professional athletes' results. But if we look at the results that I think we achieve with our very busy amateurs, I have equal pride with, with those men and women that hold down busy lives but are still able to qualify to Hawaii, win age group world championships in Hawaii on 10 or 12 hours a week of training. It seems crazy, but ultimately the message is, that really time-starved athlete that successfully integrated 12 hours, if I had forced them to do 15 or 16 hours a week, they probably would have failed. And that, that is the key thing, I think. So to even further help bust that myth that age groupers need to train as many hours as the pros to achieve really high success at an amateur level, can you go into specifics on some example of age groupers that have achieved very high success at an amateur level for example maybe the one that you talk about in your book with a, a fellow finn that you coached to world championship titles yeah i mean we have many uh the, the guy that you're talking about finnish guy sami inken and uh, ironically i saw saw sami yesterday um he's sami is a very successful tech entrepreneur he was the the founder of trulia uh, a real estate uh, website search engine and and has now started a, a new company a health company looking to cure diabetes and um, a wonderful guy a smart guy a pragmatic guy but when I met Sami he was uh, and, and we have to preface this story with Sami has lungs like an elephant he's a very strong guy he's, he's genetically gifted as the the gateway into the the realm of endurance sports but when I met Sami he just started Trulia. And so he was very, very busy. And as you know, starting a company, it consumes much of your time. So we had this goal, this project, this challenge of, I've got this unmovable thing, which is my life and building a tech company. At the same time, I want to do very well in triathlon. And so we started with the mindset or the approach. And we came up with a recipe of about 10 hours a week, 
of consistent training that we could achieve. And so my challenge as the coach was to guide Sami onto what's the best use of those 10 hours and then periodically enable him to go away for a couple of days at the weekend and do some big rides back to back to get some of the Ironman specific training, get some of the confidence to actually do some over distance. So very occasionally, once every six or seven weeks, we'd get to do a big block of two days. But on the overall consistency from the start of the season all the way through to his Ironman races, we're on a recipe of about 10 hours a week. And over the course of that time, he became amateur world champion in the Ironman 70.3 event. He broke nine hours in Hawaii and, um, and a whole host of other accomplishments. So he, be, he became amateur world champion. Uh, we, we have a, a very similar guy to that as well, a, a father of two, CEO of a, um, uh, of a men's uh, uh, grooming product type company, Everyman Jack, a guy called Rich Viola, very busy family man. He started the amateur racing team, Everyman Jack, so he's, he's managing that as well. He's the CEO of a company. He became double world champion. He won when 70.3 world championships were in Montreblanc and then backed it up and won his age group in Hawaii, all on a compressed training prescription. Not 10 hours a week. He had 14, off, 14 hours a week, but still at that very top level. I think both of those guys are great examples of, of athletes that it, it's not that 10 hours a week delivers nine hours in Hawaii. It's that... With that guy who's very talented, if I had a prescribed 14, he probably would have failed. He probably would have got injured or had fatigue with everything else that he had in life. So we have to redefine what is success. And even at the pro level, Jesse Thomas is the CEO of Picky Bars, is a father. He has a very different life than Lionel Sanders or Andy Potts or any of those guys. And so we, I have to approach Jesse's training program very differently and Tim Reeves actually who is a father of two and is a very active father I have to approach their training program different than let's say Sarah Piampiano or Kevin Collington who are in for lack of a better phrase true professionals and they're, they're, all of them are at the world-class level right very good summary so I want to quickly cover your periodization principles for triathlon training because that's something that you also talk a lot about in your book and go into much more detail than we can do on this show but but can you just give us a, a quick overview of your periodization principles well i think that um i i tend to not use the, the phrase periodization too much and, and i think that that's because there's a preconceived notion of 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 many of what periodization is um and i think a lot of people make the mistake of thinking that when you have a periodized program, you go through a phase where you only think about one intensity and you avoid other intensities all, all at, um, throughout that phase. And then you shift and you layer on a different intensity and you go through. We actually like uh, every purple patch athlete to hit every intensity every week. Really, the, the, the mission is where's, where's the focus? Where's the emphasis? So what's the mission of the training program? Uh, I, I will also say that we try and create training programs that are pragmatic relative to the realities of life. And a great example is now where many people have very short days and maybe live in very cold environments, Minnesota or New York, 
And so having an athlete overly emphasize big endurance or what many people say base training or foundation training when they're restricted with their ability to go outside due to daylight and or temperatures, it doesn't make any sense to me. It's not practical. And why would I have an athlete spending hours and hours and hours on a bike trainer doing five or six hour foundational training rides is very boring. It's enough to, um, to want to bang your head against the wall. So rather than that, as we're further away from race specific training, which by the way is endurance driven because we are endurance athletes, when we find that we can actually do some building block work and do some work that actually is less specific to training, but will make our race specific training more effective when we get there. So increasing the overall capacity of the muscle to do work, developing some real resilience and strength endurance work. So at this time of the year, we actually do a lot of high intensity, a lot of sprint type training, high, high power type training, type of stuff that is maybe flipped upside down than what you might imagine uh, the classical base training. So we go through four global phases overall. And emotionally, we always start the next season in the bulb of our athletes after Hawaii. So end of October, that's when our season starts. And we go through a phase of training called postseason there. So the following on from the season. And that's a, seat, that's a phase of preparation. Low physical stress, high technical emphasis, and really a phase of preparing for hard work. Now, as we're being recorded right now, we transition typically in the new year for Northern Hemisphere athletes into what we call pre-season. A lot of building block work. We start to develop endurance, resilience, but we have, as we're far away from race-specific training, we have the opportunity to do some very high intensity and overall capacity work. And that leads us into some early season racing. We tend to get a big increase in fitness, but we want to do it, build it very carefully. I go through a little phase in April or May for most athletes, ignoring races, of course, at the moment, uh, of a little sharpening or fast speed. And then 50 to 60% of the year is race-specific training. So the key sessions of the week are almost dress rehearsal-like in the experiences and the tools that they need to be effective. So it's almost 50% of the year for a Northern Hemisphere athlete somewhere in May all the way through to October that uh, they're in race-specific training. The headline news, to, sorry, to the headline news is I emotionally uh, break an athlete's journey up in, in two phases, post-season, pre-season, and sharpening, or power and speed, as I sometimes call it. That's designed to develop the athlete's physiology, butchering the word, but that's allowing, that's to a broad range to work on weaknesses, exploit strengths, just become a better athlete. Then the rest of the season is to train for the race. And that enables, I think, athletes to develop over the course of a season, get the biggest yield from their race-specific training, but progress season on season. And that's really important because I don't want an athlete to have a great year. I want them to have a great career. That's a good point about developing from season to season and, and taking that long-term view and not just thinking around the time of new year, well, okay, which race should I sign up for for this summer and, and which training plan should I use for it? And then letting everything else be, be an afterthought and, and not really 
progressing on what you've done previous seasons at all. So, so yeah, that's good that you brought that up. All right. Um, let's talk a bit about your coaching at Purple Patch Fitness. What can athletes that that sign up with with you expect? Well, I, I think at the the, the, the easy entry point is actually purely through education. And, and we have a, a lot of coaches, you know, as has probably or hopefully come out in our discussion, the um, education is, a, is the heartbeat of everything we do and, and covering all ranges from training methodology, nutrition, strength, and, and everything along those lines. And, uh, and we have a lot of coaches, a lot of athletes, uh, self-coached or coached elsewhere that participate in our education membership where they can ask questions as an unlimited matter, have full access to our library. We have meetings just like this twice weekly um, with all of our Purple Patch athletes in a small group setting and have access to that. And it's only $25 a month. It's really low barrier to entry. But part of our, our hope and mission is to help educate athletes and coaches. So, so that's the easy entry. And then if an athlete would really like coaching and uh, and would like support there's a range there's obviously working with me individually most athletes don't really need to work with me directly uh, we have a, we have a fantastic range of programs and the best thing that i would say is go to purple patch fitness reach out say hey heard you on a podcast love to chat more and the easy thing for us to do is to hop on the phone have a discussion talk about goals, talk about what you want accomplished and try and fit the athlete into the right program for them. And we have a, a broad range of tiers or levels to suit the, the athlete's needs as well as how much money they, they have or want to spend, which is obviously a hugely important factor. Yeah, I definitely encourage all the listeners to go and have a look at that because uh, with coaching generally, I feel that many age groupers don't really know what they're missing because they've never been coached. So they don't really understand how much of your potential you can really fulfill that you are missing out on without having that and the way that you you have it structured with many different entry points in terms of, of pricing with the the cheaper education package that's awesome so people can get a, a great head start that way so matt are you ready for the rapid fire questions i would do my best i fasten my seatbelt what's your favorite book blog or resource related to triathlon and as amazing as it is, you can't say your own book. Yeah. <laughs> uh, can I say my upcoming book? Uh, my second book that will be coming out in September, but I won't say that. I, I will tell you a, a book that I'm reading right now uh, that also is a blog, uh, Peak Performance. And, uh, and it's by um, uh, two, two gentlemen, uh, Bradley... Brad, Sol- Brad Stuhlberg and Steve Magnus. Steve Magnus, and, uh, and I know them both very well, uh, and um, uh, I've known, uh, actually Brad is uh, based in San Francisco with, with me here, but, um, but those two guys, I've, I'm very lucky to have an advanced copy of, of their book, Peak Performance, which is coming out in June, and I, I think it's fantastic. I think they're great. I, I have the greatest respect for Steve Magnus, and I believe in, um, I believe in learning from outside of the sport. And, uh, and so that's, that's a blog and that's the, the book that I would um, encourage every athlete to follow. Yeah, I can second that. I'm also on that newsletter and it's excellent. What's your favorite piece of gear or equipment? The pace clock in swimming because it's free and it is a, a huge component for an athlete learning self-management and pacing. And that's why I banned people having uh, 
uh, laptops on their wrists giving you a lack of information. So I would say the pace clock. What's the personal habit that's helped you achieve success? Uh, for, for me personally, uh, I, I would say two. The, the first is um, really trying to prioritize sleep. And as a component of that, I have a habit that almost sounds lazy, but is, I think, a huge component for me for energy management in the day, which is almost every day having a very short, quiet time in a dark environment for about 15 minutes. I may or may not fall asleep, that doesn't factor, but productivity and energy levels in the rest of the day are hugely components. So that's number one. And then I'm English, so one of the things that I did last year that had a big knock on effect is eliminate alcohol in the week, no beers in the evening. <laughs> and finally, what do you wish you had known or wish you had done differently at some earlier point in your career? Well, that's not rapid fire because I, as, a, as we started this call, uh, I think as a um, uh, as a um, as an athlete, I, I made all the mistakes out there, and, and in fact, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Uh, as a coach, um, the one thing that I was glad to answer a slightly different question. The one thing I was glad was to have the courage to own my own mindset and philosophy, and not just follow others. So. I think one of the things I did well was to learn as much as I could, uh, embrace learning from others, which I still do today. I don't have all the answers by any stretch of the imagination. There's still so much that we don't know, um, but have the conviction or, and the courage to actually say, this is what I believe and, uh, and, um, and go from there. So, so I'll answer a slightly different question. That's what I think I did right. As an athlete, I did almost everything wrong. Yeah, the listeners can just reference the start of the interview to hear about that and if they want to re-listen. Can you give us a brief overview of your book? Because I wasn't aware that you have a new book coming out. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's not a follow-up to the World Built Triathlete, actually. It's um, it's going to be a book all around the, the very busy amateur and trying to crack or solve the problem for so many athletes that we help and, and uncovering the... Um, the mindset and the practical approach. And in fact, the book itself will include a training program, a flexible dynamic training program to get ready for both half Ironman or Ironman events on a very time restricted schedule. And the hope after reading the book is that athletes understand how to do that, but also understand that by doing it well, it's not only going to give them sporting results, successfully go and achieve their goals in Ironman or half Ironman, but it's going to give them life results as well. They'll have more energy in the day. They'll have a better health profile. And ultimately, this sport that is a demanding sport can be sustainable in, in even the busiest life. And, um, and so it's all about the time-crunched athlete in many ways. So, yeah, it, it, won't, it probably won't be out until about September. Exciting stuff. We're looking forward to that. And the listeners can... Stay tuned. We'll have news about that new book for sure on the scientifictriathlon.com newsletter and on social media as well when it comes out because I'm sure it will be great. Anything else you want to add, Matt, before we wrap up? No, just thank you very much for having me and uh, look forward to hopefully uh, helping many in the future and anyone wants to reach out, it's www.purplepatchfitness.com and uh, just uh, just let us know that you heard us here so that we can uh, take some special care of you and 
Mikhail, thank you very much for having us on. Thank you, Matt. Uh, it was your pleasure, and we'll catch up later. All right, I hope that you learned a lot from that interview with Matt Dixon. I enjoy talking to him a lot, and uh, as, as I said, his book, The Well-Built Triathlete, goes into these things into much more detail, and it's one of the best triathlon books out there, without a doubt. I'm actually at the moment writing a blog post about my favorite triathlon books, and The Well-Built Triathlete by Matt Dixon is on that list. If you are signed up for the scientifictriathlon.com newsletter, you'll get news about that blog post when it's finished. So you can go to scientifictriathlon.com and sign up for that. So let this interview sink in for a while and think about whether you are doing all of these things. Do you have these pillars of performance in place so that you can have a successful triathlon career? Whatever you define as success, it doesn't have to be winning races. I think we are going to wrap up for today. This episode has been long enough already. So as always, you can go to thattriathlonshow.com for the show notes. In the next episode, we'll have Bevan Mackinnon on. He's a double age group world champion from last year, 2016. He won the Ironman World Championships and the Ironman 70.3 World Championships. And he will talk about how to train for your perfect half or full distance triathlon. Thank you, as always, for listening. Please hit that subscribe button if you haven't already and if you're digging the show. Also, I heard these new cool things about iTunes rankings today. They say that if you get a lot of ratings and reviews, you rank higher in iTunes. So why don't we do an experiment? If you can go and give me a rating and a review on iTunes and we can see if that triathlon show starts to rank higher, that would really help me and help the show. So I would appreciate if you could take a second to do that. I made a link for you so that it's super easy. Just go to scientifictriathlon.com forward slash rate and I will take you directly to where you can rate the podcast. And obviously there was a bit about of, of sarcasm when I said that I just learned that about iTunes. I've been knowing it for a long time, of course. But still, it helps. So seriously, I would really, really appreciate it if you do that. All right, that's it. Let's wrap up and talk to you in the next episode keep training smart and keep loving triathlon